Well, take your Bible and turn to Isaiah 7. Isaiah chapter 7, and one of the central features of the Christmas story is the virgin birth. Really, more precisely, the virgin conception of Jesus Christ in our Advent series this year is centering on what I'm calling ancient anticipation. Some of the most important Old Testament prophecies related to Christ's first coming. And the virgin birth is as classic and as well known as it gets in the list of these prophecies. And this morning, it's my hope to show you the importance of this prophecy and how it relates to us today. It's a big story. It's bigger than one little verse. And so we want to jump right in. I want to show you four parts to this story. And I'll divide it up into four parts here. The prophecy of the virgin birth, the truth of the virgin birth, the implications of the virgin birth, and then the royalty of the virgin birth. And I'll I'll divide this and repeat that as we go. But I want to begin immediately with the prophecy of the virgin birth. This is the focus of our time together this morning. You can't understand Isaiah 7 without thinking a little bit about Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6 as Isaiah answered the call of God to proclaim repentance, to warn the southern kingdom of Judah of impending judgment in the 8th century B.C., God told Isaiah that the people would be deaf to his words, they would be blind to the truth, they would be ignorant in their hearts of what God was going to say. They wouldn't listen. And now in chapter 7, this deafness, this ignorance, this blindness spiritually is immediately demonstrated. A young King Ahaz has the opportunity of a lifetime. The opportunity of a lifetime to be rescued by the Lord, to demonstrate that he loves and serves Yahweh alone. But at the age of probably 21 or 22, he decides to trust himself instead. And in the midst of God's anger and frustration with Ahaz, we get one of the most beloved passages in all of the Bible Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. It's about 734 B.C. Syria and Israel have tried to force the southern kingdom of Judah into an alliance against the empire of Assyria. And just a little note here, sometimes Bible readers confuse Syria and Assyria. In Isaiah's time, Syria was generally called Aram or the Arameans. Assyria, the large empire, was expanding. They were imperialistic. They desired to control the entire ancient Near East. Directly to the north of Judah, Israel, same blood, same family as Judah, but politically separated now for the past 200 years. Israel is also called Ephraim, the name of the most powerful tribe. They're much larger. They're much more powerful than the little southern kingdom of Judah. Syria, or the Arameans, have joined with this northern kingdom of Israel in an alliance. And their hope is to go against Assyria, but first they're putting pressure on the southern kingdom of Judah. And here's their intention. Syria and Israel intend to give an ultimatum to Judah. That if Judah would not join with them against Assyria, that these two kingdoms together would end the Davidic kingdom. They would end the Davidic line of kings and put a puppet king in Ahaz's place. Isaiah 7 verse 6 says, even the name, they will set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. 
So that's the basic situation. Now, if you know Isaiah at all, and we spend a lot of time in Isaiah lately especially, this is a rare narrative story happening here, and it provides the setting for one of the most beloved and one of the most debated prophecies in all of Scripture, the prophecy of the virgin-born son. And so I want to give you three different views of this prophecy. I want to give you the microscope view. We get really close up. I'll give you the naked eye view, back away a little bit, and then I want to give you the telescope view, really the big picture. But we'll start very small with some details, the microscope view. Isaiah presents a dilemma. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now it happened in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Razan, the son of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was told to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Ahaz was not trusting the Lord, and he was not leading Judah to trust in the Lord. Their hearts were were shaking at this. Syria and Israel have come to Jerusalem to attack. They're being held off for the moment. But Ahaz is distressed by this dilemma. So is he going to give in and go into this alliance with Syria and Israel and hope that they can withstand the growing might of the Assyrians? Well, Ahaz feared men more than he feared God and he led his people into this fear as well. There's no faith in the Lord. There's no appeal to God. No appeal for help. There's no desire to seek the protection and the favor of God who had been the one to originally form them into a nation. Ahaz was a Davidic king. He's descended from the great King David himself and yet he's totally spineless. He lacks courage. He's a man pleaser. Now, not surprisingly, Ahaz was not on friendly terms with the prophet Isaiah intended to avoid him. And so the Lord gives Isaiah an opportunity to speak to Ahaz on his behalf, and he does it when Ahaz is is less guarded and and perhaps more vulnerable. Ahaz is out inspecting the water supply of Jerusalem in anticipation of the coming attack from the northern kingdom of Israel and the Arameans or the Syrians. So he's looking at the water supply. But God's going to offer a solution to this dilemma that King Ahaz is in. Verse 3. Then Yahweh said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shearer Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool to the highway of the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and be quiet. Have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the burning anger of Razan and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has counseled evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says Lord Yahweh, it shall not stand, nor shall it happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Razan. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you do not establish your faith in Yahweh, you surely shall not be established. So Isaiah is sent out to meet Ahaz, and Isaiah 
was there to calm his fears. And in fact, Isaiah uh, brings his son, Shear Jashub. It means a, a remnant shall return. There's a clear message even in this son. It incorporates the warning and promises of chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, that someday Judah would go into exile, but it wouldn't be in this era, and it certainly wouldn't be at the hands of the northern kingdom of Israel and of Syria. And a remnant, a holy seed, a holy remnant would be saved. And so what's Isaiah's message from the Lord to this young man, 21, 22 years old? His message in verse 4 is, don't be afraid. The plot to replace you isn't going to succeed. That's not going to happen. And in fact, Isaiah pictures these two nations as smoldering stubs. Just a little piece of wood that used to be on fire, just barely smoldering now. They're on the verge of their power being totally lost. Israel, the northern kingdom, was just a few years away from complete destruction at the hands of Assyria, not including the defeats they would suffer sooner than that even. Verse 8 says that Damascus would fall in 65 years. Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, would cease being a people. Assyria would defeat them once in 732. He would cast off many of them in 722. But in about 671, right about 65 years or so, right after this prophecy, Assyria repopulated the northern kingdom with foreigners who intermarried with whatever Jews were left. And they formed a new people that we know in the New Testament as the Samaritans. In verse 9, the message is clear. If you do not establish your faith in Yahweh, you surely shall not be established. Either stand firm in Yahweh or you won't stand. By the way, this is not just a call to Ahaz to have faith in God because of this crisis. This is a call to Ahaz to have saving faith in God, to turn to God personally. And so to bolster Ahaz's faith, God promises a sign and God gives what I believe is the biggest blank check in all of history, in all of scripture. Verse 10, then Yahweh spoke again to Ahaz saying, ask a sign for yourself from Yahweh your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. God offers to do anything Ahaz asks to give him confidence that God would deliver him from Israel and Syria. Now, I don't know about you, but my imagination runs wild as to what could be asked for. Uh, he might ask for something epic. It could be, let lightning strike all the armies of my enemies. It, it could be, let hailstones crush my enemies. Let the earth swallow up my enemies. Let blindness overwhelm my enemies. Let my enemies suddenly be turned lame and unable to fight. I mean, the, the list is endless of what could have been asked for. Now, I have a bit of a twisted sense of humor, and so I always go to a, a humorous possibility. Give my enemies the worst case of athlete's foot in history. Uh, let poison ivy grow in their sleeping bags. Let all their food go bad, and let them throw up for a week and go home. Uh, let the two kings suddenly start acting like monkeys so that their armies go home. Again, the, the, the list is endless. God is asking Ahaz to have real, genuine faith in him, and God would immediately validate that faith with anything Ahaz asked for. Listen, this was a prosperity gospel preacher's dream right here. 
This is unprecedented. But Ahaz rejects God's offer. How do you reject a blank check like that? And he does it in self-righteous, falsely religious fashion. In verse 12, But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not test Yahweh. See, Ahaz's mind was already made up. He was going to take the human solution of appealing to Assyria, of going to the big boys. Ahaz hid his hypocrisy behind a wall of false religion. He pretended he didn't want to put God to the test. In fact, he even quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16. But this is false piety. God offered the sign. It wouldn't be sinful for Ahaz to accept it. So God is wearied and his patience is exhausted by the false religiosity of Ahaz. And Isaiah says, representing God in verse 13, then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Isaiah is lamenting, will the king descended from the great David himself not only be a terrible king to the people, but one who fails to love God, one who fails to trust in God, one who fails to have faith in God. And I want you to know this, that you will try the patience of my God. This is a message from Isaiah to Ahaz that God is my God. He's clearly not yours. Rather than Ahaz enjoying whatever sign he might desire, instead of him trusting the Lord, he's rebuked by the Lord. That God will give a sign. God will still rescue Judah. But Ahaz has proven himself unfaithful and he'll be left behind in God's ultimate blessing. Here's the rebuke and the conclusion to the story. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. We don't often understand that this is actually a rebuke. This is actually a a punishment to Ahaz. God's rebuke to Ahaz who refused to ask for a glorious sign. God would give his own sign. A, A virgin would become pregnant and give birth to a son. And he would be Emmanuel, God with us. It's not the name he would go by, so to speak. It's the the meaning of his birth. The idea here is that for Ahaz, the child named Emmanuel is a witness against Ahaz's lack of faith. If Emmanuel, if God is with us, why should he have feared the enemy? Why should he have refused the comfort of the Lord? Ahaz was not going to protect the throne of David and the people of God, so Isaiah prophetically leaves this time and projects now to a future time. Why was Ahaz so self-righteous? Why was he refusing the offer of Yahweh to help him? Because Ahaz was as wicked a king of Judah as they had ever had. He was a murderer. He was a polytheist, a worshiper of multiple gods. That's the microscopic view. Let's pull back a little and get a broader view with the naked eye. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 16. 2 Kings chapter 16, we we get a pulled back, a little bit broader view and understand 
why Ahaz was so self-righteous, why he refused the offer of Yahweh to help him. And we begin to understand why he refused this because we see into his character. 2 Kings 16, verses 1 and 2. 2 Kings 16, verses 1 and 2. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, became king. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of Yahweh his God, as David his father had done. He's a very young man, but he's already full of himself. He already knows everything. He's been co-regent or co-king with his father Jotham since he was probably about 17. Make a 17-year-old king of a nation and it goes to his head. He was very prideful. He had no concept of true faith in Yahweh. Syria and Israel have mounted their first attack on Judah. They're not ultimately successful. But when they came back later, there was significant reason for Ahaz and for all the people to be terrified Because during the first attack, yes, they repelled it, but it was at a huge cost. 2 Chronicles 28 tells us that Judah lost 120,000 men in that battle. 2 Chronicles 28 gives the reason they had forsaken the God of their fathers. And not only that, Israel took 200,000 women and children and carried them north to Samaria as slaves. And in God's mercy, a prophet of God named Oded, he stopped the armies of the north and he told them that they had in fact been God's tool to punish the unfaithfulness of Judah, but they shouldn't take their own relatives as slaves. And so amazingly, they released and sent the 200,000 women and children back. But apparently, Syria and Israel came back and this time they came all the way to Jerusalem to lay siege to the city. It's right here, it's at this moment that God sent Isaiah to offer Ahaz rescue and to offer whatever sign Ahaz might ask for and Ahaz refused. Why? Because Ahaz had already made up his mind. He was about to ask the the empire of Assyria for help and Ahaz had no intention of seeking God, no intention of going to prayer. 2 Chronicles 28 says that during this time he became even more faithless to the Lord. So God gave Ahaz the sign that a son would be born who would ultimately be the salvation of Israel. That a son is coming that would save them. But then Ahaz does something that no king of Israel had ever done. Certainly no relative, no descendant of David had ever done. Verse 3. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and even made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh had dispossessed from before the sons of Israel. Ahaz offered his own son as a human sacrifice. He was trying to gain the favor of pagan gods and and his religious philosophy was worship every god he could think of except Yahweh. Verse 4, he also sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Instead of seeking God, the one who formed the nation, Ahaz seeks human help with Assyria, which on the surface is going to work. 
And that was part of God's plan, but Ahaz shows himself faithless. In fact, in verses 5 through 9, he gives away all the treasures of the temple, all the treasures of the palace to Assyria to come save them. And now, instead of thanking Yahweh, instead of giving rightful glory to God, Ahaz meets with Tiglath-Pileser, who is the king of the Assyrian Empire, at the recently conquered Damascus of Syria. And Ahaz saw this altar. There's a pagan altar at Damascus. And he gets inspired. And so he, he has plans for this altar drawn up. And he sends them to the priest Uriah or Urijah in Jerusalem. And Uriah builds the altar. And when Ahab, Rahaz rather returned to Jerusalem, he begins sacrificing on this altar. And the obvious question is, what about the altar of Yahweh? What about the temple? He put the altar of Yahweh aside. He put it away. He put away the other implements of worship prescribed by God. He cast them aside so that he could participate in pagan worship in God's temple. By the way, he did keep using the Lord's altar. He used it for divination and witchcraft cutting animals in half and trying to read the entrails. Ahaz completely replaced the worship of Yahweh with pagan worship. The house of the Lord now became a religious abomination. So do you see why Ahaz gave Isaiah the brush off? When Isaiah offered this comfort and help from Yahweh, Ahaz was a depraved, idol-worshiping, witchcraft-using, conniving, self-centered man who would sacrifice even his own son on the altar of his success. This is just my own personal search, but this is the one time I believe I've ever found in Scripture in which God offers an unbeliever anything to come to faith. And Ahaz said, no thanks, I'll sacrifice my son instead. So let's back up. When God offered to give Ahaz any sign, anything as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol, symbolically meaning anything you want, what should Ahaz have said? What should he have asked for? Well, let's go to the telescope view. Let's back way up. If Ahaz had possessed genuine faith in Yahweh, and Yahweh says, I'll give you anything all the way up from coming from heaven, What should he have asked for as he faced the siege of Jerusalem by Israel and Syria and still had the empire of Assyria to contend with? Here's what he should have said. He should have said, Yahweh, oh mighty God, would you defeat Israel and Syria? Would you crush Assyria? And Yahweh, you said to ask as high as heaven. I ask that you defeat the enemies of Judah by coming to the earth yourself. By coming and defeating my enemies in person. In other words, he should have asked for a son to be given. He should have asked for Messiah to come. No wonder Isaiah cries out in verse 13, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well. And so the rebuke to Ahaz in the form of God saying that he's going to cleanse the house of David. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Not Ahaz. It's a plural you in Hebrew. You go back to the antecedent. The house of David will receive a sign. 
The kings of David will receive a sign that God is going to replace Ahaz and bring a Davidic king who will rule with righteousness. You realize Ahaz had right in his grasp, right in front of him, the chance to go down in history as the greatest Davidic king in history, the one that brought Messiah. But Ahaz was a failure as a Davidic king, a failure as a man, wicked to the core. And so God's answer is, I will bring the true king of Israel. It's just not going to be you. That's the prophecy of the virgin birth. That helps us understand the context. Second part I'd like to talk to you about is the truth of the virgin birth. The truth of the virgin birth. And now let's go to the New Testament. Turn with me to Matthew 1. In Matthew 1, I want to talk about the truth of the virgin birth because I think this is one of the parts of the Christmas story that is most often questioned. It's reasonable to talk about why we believe that Christ was born of a virgin. I'd like to give you five reasons, and they're just one-word reasons. The fifth reason is the big one, but we'll do four to kind of lead up to it. The first reason why we believe Christ was born of a virgin, we'll just call heritage. Heritage. The church has universally believed the virgin birth until the liberal theology of the mid-19th century began to question all things supernatural. Ignatius of Antioch, the head pastor of the church in, in Syrian Antioch, was martyred around 117 AD, but before that he wrote a summary of key doctrinal facts about Christ. And concerning the virgin birth, Ignatius called this truth, quote, one of the mysteries to be shouted about. Now, I could make a list of the significant church leaders who have believed the virgin birth over the past 2,000 years. It would be a lot easier to make a list of those who didn't because it's really short. And all of the ones who did not believe the virgin birth traditionally have been labeled as heretics, as unorthodox. The virgin birth of Christ is highlighted in every major Christian creed and every major Christian confession. And so we have the heritage reason. It's the second reason we believe that Christ was born of a virgin, the uniformity reason. Uniformity. The truth about Christianity is contained in a book which teaches of a God who has no beginning and no ending, who created all things from nothing. This is a book that teaches a God-ordained worldwide flood, the fact that God instantly created a variety of languages at the Tower of Babel, the God who caused the miraculous conception of Isaac in that his mother Sarah was decades past child-rearing age and In the Bible, we see miracles of nature on an epic scale, such as the ten plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the sun standing still for a day, legions of angels revealed to one of the Lord's servants, the prophets healing the sick and raising the dead, a prophet flying up to heaven alive, Elijah. In the life of Jesus, we see him walking on water, multiplying food miraculously, healing the sick, raising the dead, predicting and bringing about his own resurrection, and Jesus flying up to heaven alive. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is absolutely glorious, but in the scheme of everything else in Scripture, it's not really that surprising. It is uniform. It's very consistent with the level of the miraculous which begins with the very first verse of the Bible. It's the third reason we believe the virgin birth. We'll just call this reason Mary. Mary. 
Mary did not consider herself sinless. She did not consider herself unique. In fact, in Luke 1, she affirmed that she needed a Savior. Acts chapter 1, verse 14, after the ascension of Christ into heaven, we get one last peek into the life of Mary. She is simply a part of a group of worshipers of Christ. Now, this is very important. Mary considered herself a worshiper of Christ. If Mary secretly knew that Joseph was actually the father of Jesus and had just allowed the myth of Jesus' virgin conception to be perpetuated, do you think she would actually worship Jesus? She wouldn't because she would know that it was a lie. Her song of Luke chapter 1 reveals her to be a godly woman who credits God with the baby in her womb. It's the fourth reason we believe in the virgin birth. We'll call this purity. Purity, a natural conception, quite simply, would have meant a sinful Savior. And that's a moral and a theological impossibility. John 3, verse 6 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Romans 12, or Romans 5, 12, rather, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, we, the first four reasons are nice. We only really need the fifth one, and that is Bible. That's why we believe it. The Bible clearly teaches the virgin birth of Christ. Now, I want to camp on this for a bit. Matthew 1.16 And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. This is worded very precisely. By whom or out of whom Jesus was born. This makes a clear delineation that Mary was his mother. Joseph was not his father. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I want you to notice a key fact. Joseph knew he was not the father of this child. Another key fact. Heaven declared that this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And heaven had already given the child a human name, Yeshua or Jesus in Greek. In English, we transliterate Jesus, meaning Savior, the one who would save. Verse 22 Now all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. And here's the Isaiah 7.14 prophecy saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The virgin birth was not a whim of God. It was the plan of God. And Matthew's inspired account tells that the prophetic word of Isaiah 14 is ultimately looking at this actual virgin conception. Verse 21, the child received a human name as a human being, and yet he is affirmed as the Son of God, God with humanity. And in verse 25, Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 
Just to hammer the point home here, the account ends with the fact that Mary was a virgin until Jesus was born. But we don't want to rely just on one text, one detailed account of the virgin birth. Turn to Luke chapter 1. And in Luke 1, we get a, a second account. Luke 1, beginning in verse 26. Luke 1, beginning in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. Verse 34. But Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Gabriel is commissioned by God himself to go give a message to Mary, and the text could not be clearer, to a virgin. The virgin's name was Mary. I am a virgin. And notice, by the way, in verse 31, that Mary is told that she would conceive. She's not some sort of surrogate in which God is borrowing her womb for a child not hers. She's the actual biological mother of Jesus. Well, even at that, a skeptic might say, well, Only two Gospels tell the story of the virgin birth. I I can't believe that based on just two references in Scripture. Well, we have two answers to any sort of skepticism like that. The first one is is that Matthew's account and Luke's account are completely different in their presentation, in their emphasis. You get two totally different angles. They come at the virgin birth from different angles, and yet they're in complete agreement about the virgin birth. There is no way that somehow Matthew and Luke uh, collaborated to make up some story. The two accounts are totally independent. Matthew focuses on Joseph. Luke focuses on Mary. An angel appears to Joseph in a dream, but the angel appears to Mary in person. Joseph was corrected, and he was silent. Mary was commended, and she had a long conversation with the angel. Joseph was given minimal details about the purposes of Jesus, while Mary is told in, in Luke 1.32 that Jesus would reign on the throne of his human ancestor David, would reign over Israel forever, and that his kingdom would have no end. And so, yes, there's only two accounts, but they come at it from different angles, and they're not a collaboration. It's the second answer to any skeptic. There are many other scriptures that actually point us to the virgin birth. And I'll just list them for you. You don't have to turn to them. But for example, in Luke 3.23, Luke's genealogy of Jesus begins. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. That's a phrase that means, so they thought. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth doing the work of the ministry. And those that grew up around him, didn't take him seriously. They said, is this man not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were taking offense at him. Now, some have said that they are simply calling him the son of Mary because Joseph had already died. That is never the case in Scripture. That's not the pattern of Scripture, certainly not the pattern of Judaism, which highly valued the Father's ancestral line. In Scripture, men are always their father's son, even after the father has passed away. But when a man's father was unknown or generally thought to be a mystery, the man was referred to as the son of his mother. 
By the way, this would be considered an insult that they didn't believe that Joseph was Jesus' biological father. Or John 8.41, the Jews to whom Jesus was speaking made this jab at him, this condescension, this insult. They proclaimed about themselves, we were not born of sexual immorality, meaning we don't think Joseph is your father. In John 9.29, the Jews said of Jesus, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. That's a nice way of saying we don't know who his dad is. Paul asserted in Galatians 4, verse 4, that when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That Jesus was conceived as a man at the exact moment ordained by God. Paul is clear that Jesus was born of a woman, not a man and a woman. In Hebrews 10, verse 5, Christ is pictured as saying to God the Father that he has a body you have prepared for me. That's a direct statement about the conception caused by God. Genesis 3.15, the very first prophecy of a coming Savior is very clear and precise that the coming Savior who will defeat Satan is of the seed of woman, born of a woman. So far from the virgin birth being some obscure idea based on a verse or two, the biblical evidence for the virgin birth is overwhelming. That's the prophecy and the truth of the virgin birth. What does that mean for you? What does it mean for us? Let me give you the third part. We'll call this the implications of the virgin birth. The implications of the virgin birth. Why is this significant to you? Is this just some sort of theological gotcha to say, well, we believe something that you don't? Some might wonder if the virgin birth has any significance to us. I would say that the extraordinary and supernatural quality of the birth of Christ must have significance. It, it has to. It demands significance. I narrowed it down to just three guarantees that you have as a Christian because of the, the virgin birth of Christ. The first guarantee, you can never be separated from God. You can never be separated from God. Isaiah 7 predicted, Matthew 1 confirmed that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. It's not a name as much as it is a fact. Now, we often emphasize the God part, but remember there's the with us part. He is God with us. The virgin birth wasn't necessary from God's standpoint in that infinite, all-powerful God isn't dependent on any way whatsoever on the virgin birth for Jesus to be God. Jesus has always been God. But the virgin birth is necessary from a human standpoint so that you can know that he's God. By means of the virgin birth, the eternal Son of God came to us forever as one of us. And this is not just a theological point to make. This fact is going to become really important at the moment of your death. Because you know, because of the virgin birth, you already know that when you meet God, you will meet God who is someone like you. Someone you recognize. There's a second guarantee. Your sin debt is paid in full. Your sin debt is paid in full. And I want you to follow this logic with me. The Holy Spirit sanctified the human nature of Christ. And what do I mean by that? There's reasonable evidence that the sin nature of mankind is passed down through the Father, beginning with Adam, Romans 5, 12, and 19 
might lead us to that conclusion. It's not necessary to make a, a really hard stand on that, particularly since Mary was a sinner. We know she was a sinner because she said she needed a savior. We would also note that Psalm 51.5, King David attributes his sin nature to his mother. The Roman Catholic position is that since Jesus is sinless, then Mary herself had to be sinless as well. And so now you have the idolatrous worship of Mary continuing in full force today. But you can see the lack of logic of that, right? That solution doesn't solve the mystery of the sinlessness of Christ because if Mary is sinless, then who else has to be sinless? Her parents. And if her parents are sinless, who else has to be sinless? Then you go all the way back. Instead, it's better to say that the Holy Spirit ensured the sinlessness of Christ by preventing the transmission of sin from Joseph. This was John Calvin's position. He said this, quote, We make Christ free of all stain, not just because He was begotten of His mother without a man, but because He was sanctified by the Spirit that this genera- the generation might be pure and undefiled as would have been true before Adam's fall. So what does the sinlessness of Christ have to do with ensuring that your sin debt is paid in full? It's a pretty important point. Any sacrifice for your sin must be a perfect, eternal sacrifice, which is the opposite of your sin-ridden life. You needed a perfect sacrifice. And the virgin birth guarantees this. There's a third guarantee. The virgin birth guarantees that your salvation is supernatural. That your salvation is supernatural. Or put it this way, your salvation is from God alone. The virgin birth demonstrates that God is able to accomplish the apparently impossible work of giving new birth to sinners like you and like me. God promised the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, to crush and destroy Satan. God brought this about by His power, by His will, not by any human effort. Listen, the, the virgin birth shouts that salvation never comes by human effort. It must be God's work alone. Mary did not wake up one day and say, you know, I think I'll ask God to be the virgin mother of his son. No, the virgin birth happened in the same way that your spiritual birth happened. Mary didn't ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon her. He just did. In the same way, Jesus said in John 3, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from, where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. The virgin birth proves that your salvation is supernatural. It's from God alone. That's the prophecy, the truth, and the implications of the virgin birth. I, I want to just give kind of a little a bonus part here. I'm calling this the royalty of the virgin birth. The royalty of the virgin birth. Ahaz, a king descended from David, was failing. That's the context of the prophecy in Isaiah 7. But the prophecy of the coming virgin-born child has major connections, a series of threads that are all related in one way or another to royalty, specifically to the royalty of King David and to the coming son of David, Jesus Christ. Isaiah gave Ahaz the sign of the coming Savior, the virgin will be with child 
and bear a son. This is a formula. This is a very specific phrase. To be with child or to conceive and bear a son or give birth. And this formula is used multiple other places in the Bible. All the way back in Genesis 4, the very first child born to humanity uses this formula. Genesis 4, 1, Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and said, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. Now in the previous chapter, just one chapter before, Adam and Eve were told that a Savior would be born of a woman to save all of humanity from sin. And it's very unlikely that Eve thought that this baby was the Savior, although some make that argument. But she does express in no uncertain terms that God is the one who made this baby happen. And in the same way, with God's help, the Savior would be born of a woman. In Genesis 16, 11, God told the servant woman, Hagar, Behold, you are with child and will bear a son. Same formula. The son's name would be Ishmael. And this showed immediately that God was and will continue to be concerned with the salvation of Gentile peoples. And by looking back through redemptive history, we see that King David and the kings that were to come from him were not just to rule Israel only, They were also to be a blessing to all the nations. That's Israel's mission, to be a kingdom of priests, to point all nations to the one true living God. The formula is used of Abraham's wife, Sarah. In Genesis 21-2, Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. Now, this wasn't a virgin birth, but it was a miraculous birth in that both Abraham and Sarah were long past the age of procreation and this particular child Isaac he was the covenant child through whom would come King David a thousand years later the formula is used of a woman named Jochebed the mother of Moses Exodus 2 verse 2 and the woman conceived and bore a son he was born during the time of the enslavement to the Jews to the Egyptians he had to be hidden in order to not be killed by Pharaoh's edict to Uh, against all the baby boys and in God's providence Moses was taken and he was raised in Pharaoh's court and he would be the human savior of Israel by God's power to get them out of Egypt and and providentially if Moses isn't born then David is never born Israel dies in Egypt the formula is used of Samson's mother The angel of Yahweh appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall be with child and give birth to a son. If Samson isn't born and if Samson isn't miraculously empowered by God to save Israel, then Israel dies under the tyranny of the Philistines. And in the coming decades, David is never born. The formula is used of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1.20 that by God's help, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel. And we're getting closer to David now, aren't we? And in Samuel, of course, you see the last judge of Israel during the time of the judges and he would be the judge and the prophet used by God to choose a young lad to be the quintessential man after God's own heart, king of Israel, David himself. David of Bethlehem. Now what do all of those births have in common? Two things. All were decreed by God and all have some connection to King David who was the recipient of God's promise and a king descended from David who would reign over the earth forever. 
all of those births are decreed by God and in some cases even have elements of the miraculous involved. But none of them, none of them had this element, a child conceived by the Holy Spirit with no human father. Jesus is greater than Isaac. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Samson, greater than Samuel. King Ahaz, descendant of David, the one who could have called Messiah to the earth, is a failure. And he cannot and he will not lead God's people in righteousness. So Isaiah drops the bombshell. The virgin will give birth to a son who is God with us. That is a bombshell. God with us, by the way, has also guaranteed us with God. At the rapture and resurrection event recorded in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul declares us with God. He says, and so we shall always be with the Lord. The mirror image of God with us is us with God. Isn't it ironic that the virgin birth of Christ given as a rebuke to a faithless king is now one of the most precious promises that we hang on to and that we glory in. Let's pray together. Our Father, the the scope of your plan is beyond comprehension. It's mind-blowing to think that here, 2,000 years after the birth of Christ, 2,700 years after the prophecy that the virgin would be with child and give birth to a son. We celebrate the birth of that son. We celebrate his coming to earth as a man so that when we go to heaven, we will see him as a man. We will see God. And that because God is with us, we will always be with the Lord. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.